One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Panthers at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, October 30th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. This game may be over by 3 p.m. Eastern, with both teams leaning run-heavy and playing at a slow pace. The NFC South is still wide open, with all four teams within a game of each other at 3-4 or 2-5. If the Bucks lose on Thursday night, the winner of this game will be in first place in the NFC South. Both teams are bottom 10 in defensive DVOA and have been worse against the pass than they are against the run. How Carolina will try to win The Panthers enter Week 8 coming off what is likely the biggest upset of the NFL season to date, a 21-3 thumping of Tom Brady and the Bucks, a game which the Panthers entered as two touchdown underdogs. This was especially shocking given the trade of Christian McCaffrey just three days before the game, which seemed to indicate a fire sale and waving of the white flag from the organization. Now, after one dominant performance by their defense and running game, the Panthers find themselves only a game out of first place in their division. Shockingly, if the Bucks lose to the Ravens on Thursday night, they are currently 1.5 point underdogs, and the Panthers win on Sunday, then Carolina will be tied for the division lead and hold the tiebreaker as they have beaten every team in the division. The NFL is crazy sometimes. Looking at this specific game, it will be interesting to see how the Panthers attack. They ran the ball on 54% of their offensive plays in their impressive Week 8 win over the Bucks but now face a Falcons team that has devolved into one of the biggest pass funnels in the league, ranking dead last in the NFL in defensive DVOA and 31st in PFF pass rush grade. While the Falcons' run defense hasn't been anything special, it would be borderline malpractice for any team to not attack their ineptitude in pass defense. Panthers starting QB P.J. Walker had what is likely the best game of his career against the Bucks, averaging just over 8 yards per pass attempt and throwing for two touchdowns. Walker also kept a few plays alive with his legs, took only one sack, and did not turn the ball over in a very clean performance. Carolina ranks 12th in the NFL, about middle of the pack and near league average, in situation-neutral pace of play for the season. However, they have played much slower in recent weeks than they did to start the year, and they really drained the clock last week, managing only 50 total plays despite never trailing and having a decent amount of offensive success. We should expect a similar game plan this week with a methodical approach, albeit a likely shift from their 54% rush rate to a play-calling split that is slightly pass-heavy due to the easy nature of the matchup in the passing game. DJ Moore is the clear alpha here and received a 48% target share in his first game without CMC and Robbie Anderson. With Atlanta's secondary and defensive scheme struggling to stop any passing attack, we shouldn't expect a situation where Moore is taken away by the Falcons. The Panthers' defense has played pretty well this season holding every opponent to 26 points or fewer and ranking 10th in the league in yards per play allowed. So we should expect a conservative approach here that relies on their new 1-2 punch, Donta Foreman and Chuba Hubbard, in the backfield while passing slightly more than last week. The Panthers will trust their defense to keep them in it late into the game and hope to pull away late like they were able to against the Bucks. How Atlanta will try to win. The Falcons have fully committed themselves to being a run-heavy team. They currently rank 31st in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, PROE, and have thrown the ball on only 46% of their offensive plays, easily the lowest rate in the league. Last week was the most shocking instance so far, as the Falcons threw the ball only 13 times and a 35-17 loss 
which they trailed by two or more score for the last 50 minutes of the game. On their last drive of the game, trailing by 18 early in the fourth quarter, the Falcons ran the ball five times, passed three times, and were sacked once before punting the ball away and never seeing it again. Truly an impressive commitment to mediocrity. While Arthur Smith had probably overachieved by getting this team to three wins in their first six games, his acceptance of a loss there had to be disheartening for Falcons fans to watch. Entering Week 8, the Falcons host a Panthers team coming off a big win, but they still have a lot of issues to deal with. Last season, the Panthers' defense was a bit of a run funnel, with a solid pass defense and a porous run defense. This year, that has somewhat flipped with their run defense ranking the top half of the league in most metrics, and their pass defense dropping to 22nd in the NFL in DVOA. From the Falcons' perspective, that probably doesn't do much to alter their approach. They are committed to their run-heavy game plans and have shown they won't change course even in situations where almost any other team would abandon the run and quicken their pace. The Falcons also rank 30th in the league in seconds per snap, so not only are they running the ball often and in every situation, but they are also bleeding the play clock and in turn game clock due to a lack of passes and incompletions while they do it. Likeliest Game Flow Both teams are likely to run the ball a lot, with a decent amount of success, while playing at a relatively slow pace. This means we should expect a game that moves quickly on the game clock, but slowly on the scoreboard. Atlanta ranks 4th in the NFL in TD percentage on drives that reach the end zone, while Carolina ranks 30th, which means that Atlanta is the team more likely to convert drives into touchdowns and slowly take the lead. Neither team is likely to have explosive plays early on, as they will both have relatively conservative approaches and want to keep the game in reach without putting their game manager QBs in difficult situations. This should create a game environment that is slow developing and unlikely to have offensive fireworks. Long drives will be required to create scoring opportunities, with punting and kicking game likely to be critical to determining the outcome of this game. Bears and Cowboys. Kickoff Sunday, October 30th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Running back Ezekiel Elliott and wide receiver Noah Brown missed practice on Wednesday for the Cowboys, while the Bears were without two members of their offensive line. The Bears had one of the highest early down rush rates in the league this season, which has routinely placed them in long down and distance to go situations. Last week against the Patriots, we saw the offensive play calling shift as the team dialed up 11 first down pass plays and 7 combined quarterback or wide receiver rush plays. Ezekiel Elliott missed practice Wednesday due to a knee contusion and sprain, suffered in week 7, while Noah Brown also missed with a foot injury. The biggest personnel news for the Bears is the departure of defensive end Robert Quinn via trade to the Eagles. Additionally, two members of Chicago's offensive line missed practice Wednesday. How Chicago will try to win There's something that must be understood about the Bears before we dive into this specific game. The complete overhaul this organization underwent this offseason will take time. Everyone from the GM to the majority of the coaching staff to a new analytics department was either new or changed this offseason. It takes time to introduce an entirely new offense under these conditions, and we've had front row seats to the struggles that can induce this season. That said, we saw a glimmer of hope as the nation watched Monday Night Football in Week 7. Whether or not those steps forward continue remains to be seen, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Prior to last week, the Bears had scored 20 points or more only twice all season. They ended up scoring 20 points in the first half and route to a convincing 33-14 victory over the Patriots. That said, we know this team wants to be extremely run-biased, 
dead last in overall pass rate and pass rate over expectation, control the clock and tempo of the game, and stifle teams on the defensive side of the ball, seventh in points allowed per game. The biggest problem thus far has been the predictability of that game plan and the lack of dynamic play calling, which is what we saw open up a bit in Monday Night Football. The team ran the football at a 68.2% clip last week, but it was how they ran the football that gave us hope. The Bears had 29 first downs against the Patriots, only seven of which were first down running back carries before the final two drives when the game was in hand. There were six Justin Fields designed runs, one wide receiver jet sweep, and a whopping 11 first down pass plays. That's big considering Fields only threw 21 passes. This team will be far more successful if they can continue the dynamic early down play calling instead of routinely placing their team in long down and distance to go situations. In his four fully healthy games prior to last week, David Montgomery saw snap rates of 66, 80, 72, and 78% with running back opportunity counts of 21, 17, 16, and 16 in those contests. Last week, his snap rate fell to 56% and he saw 15 running back opportunities. This is also a team that runs heavy personnel alignments, 21 and 12 personnel, at about a 20% clip each, meaning a below average percentage of plays come from the standard 11 personnel alignment. Whether or not the dip in Montgomery's snap rate and running back opportunity share is a signal of a new trend or was simply due to the game environment remains to be seen, but there is no questioning the fact that backup Khalil Herbert has looked like the more explosive back this season. Herbert's 5.5 true yards per carry ranks fourth in the league, while his 6.5 yards per touch ranks third, whereas Montgomery currently sits at 3.9 true yards per carry, 47th, and 4.8 yards per touch, 27th. I would tentatively expect that we see a bit more Herbert moving forward, bringing this backfield closer to a true timeshare than a leadback slash change of pace back situation. The pure rushing matchup yields an above average 4.51 net adjusted line yards metric against the Dallas defense allowing 4.34 running back yards per carry. The biggest boost to the overall offense came through the legs of Justin Fields, who finally saw designed runs to utilize his rushing acumen. That said, it wasn't all roses and rainbows for Fields, who put the ball on the ground four total times last week, luckily losing none of the fumbles. The Chicago passing game has been a veritable disaster this season. There's no getting around that fact. The team has ranked dead last in pass rate over expectation, PROE, and overall pass rate for the entirety of the season to this point. The only pass catchers to play near every down roles are wide receiver Darnell Mooney and tight end Cole Komet, but the overall low pass volume of the offense has meant Mooney has only one game all season with more than six targets, 12, while Komet has only one game all season with more than a modest three targets, four. Neither player has found the end zone. Things got even messier this past week with the return of Enkeel Harry to the lineup, who mixed in primarily for blocking duties at the direct detriment of Dante Pettis' snaps. Equinemius St. Brown typically plays about 60% of the offensive snaps, primarily as a blocker as well, which, when combined with Harry's 42% snap rate last week, who also played primarily as a blocker, left only a 31% snap rate for Pettis, his lowest of the season. Blocking tight ends Trevon Wesco and Ryan Griffin typically put the team in 12 personnel about 20% of the time, as previously mentioned. Basically, it's Mooney or Komet as legitimate pass catchers on this offense, then everyone else. And even then, the low overall volume leaves a lot to be desired here. How Dallas will try to win. As we spoke to and saw last week, Dallas wants to be a run-first offense behind a now-healthy offensive line blocking to the league's 7th best run-blocking metrics. 
They continued their season-long trend of below-average PROE values, finishing Week 7 with a PROE value at or below league average in every game so far this season. Their overall pass rate on the season stands at a below-average 53%, which, for comparison, is below the 49ers, Seahawks, and Jaguars. Many thought that was primarily due to the quarterback situation, but Week 7 proved that wasn't the sole contributor. Dallas likes to pair elevated rush rates with an up-tempo offense, 7th in first-half pace of play and 8th in situation-neutral pace of play, designed to wear an opposing defense down as the game progresses and control the time of possession. They've largely been allowed to do so this season, with their only two losses coming in their first game of the season against the Buccaneers, where they lost their starting quarterback, and a loss to the undefeated Eagles with Cooper Rush at quarterback in Week 6. To highlight the intent of this offense, the Cowboys average only 26 pass attempts per game across their five wins and 40 pass attempts per game in their two losses. The biggest news to follow from this game is the status of Cowboys starting running back Ezekiel Elliott, who emerged from Week 7 with a knee contusion slash sprain, forcing him to miss practice on Wednesday. Zeke is not the player to miss games due to being dinged up, but it is notable that the team heads into their bye week following this week's game, meaning we could see him held out to ensure durability over the second half of the season. That could leave the explosive Tony Pollard in a featured role for the first time since week 15 of the 2020 season. In that game, Pollard rushed 12 times for 69 yards and two scores against the 49ers, adding six catches for 63 yards through the air on nine targets. Considering the Cowboys averaged 27.6 rush attempts and 3.7 running back targets per game this season, it would be wheels up for Pollard and his fourth-ranked yards per touch value, 6.2, should Zeke miss. The pure rushing matchup yields a well-above-average 4.72 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Chicago defense allowing 25.9 DK points per game to opposing backfields. We know the drill. Should Zeke play? Expect Zeke to serve as the 1A and goal line back, while Pollard serves as the change of pace and clear passing down back. We dove into this passing game last week, but let's reiterate some things for the people in the back. C.D. Lamb carries elite underlying metrics, with the fourth highest targets per route run rate, 32.4%, and third highest team target market share, 32.3%. What was going largely overlooked by the field was the fact that the Cowboys averaged only 26 pass attempts per game in wins, and most of the season was spent with Cooper Rush at quarterback. Michael Gallup out of the lineup, and Dalton Schultz in and out of the lineup with a PCL injury. Lamb went on to see only six targets last week in a comfortable win, with Dak Prescott, Michael Gallup, and Dalton Schultz back in the lineup. Keep an eye on the status of Noah Brown as the week progresses, which would likely influence CD's upside and target market share. All things considered, if needed to pass, Dallas can pass. It's simply that they prefer to win games through other means, typically by asserting control through their defense and allowing the running game to wear down the opposition as the game moves on. Expect Michael Gallup and Dalton Schultz to continue in 65-75% to snap rate roles, with Brown either playing 85% plus of the offensive snaps or giving way to some combination of return man Cavante Turpin and rookie Jalen Tolbert. Finally, the Cowboys have fed a well-below-average 26 total targets to the running back position this year. Likeliest Game Flow The above-average defenses from each side are likely to combine to suppress overall scoring here. Dallas ranks first in points allowed per drive and second in defensive drive success rate and yards per drive, while the Bears rank 15th in all three metrics, which should allow each team the opportunity to run their preferred offense far deeper into the game. That likely means increased overall rush rates and fewer total offensive plays run from scrimmage, 
which saps a lot of the fantasy upside from this game. The overall game flow will come down to which offense achieves continued success moving the chains, which quite honestly remains relatively up in the air due to the steps forward from the Bears. Either way, we should expect a lower than average total number of offensive plays run from scrimmage here, with each team likely to bias their efforts toward the run. The likeliest scenario leaves the Cowboys in control, which should open additional opportunities for their defense to wreak havoc on fields in the backfield, smelling trouble against the ball-hawking and aggressive Dallas defense. Dolphins at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, October 30th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 51.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Both teams have robust injury reports heading into their Week 8 matchup. For the Dolphins, left tackle Teron Armstead, nickelback Kadir Kahu, defensive end Emmanuel Ogba, and cornerback Xavier Howard are the names to watch on the injury report, each of whom missed practice Wednesday. The Lions had nine players miss practice Wednesday with another three listed as limited. The big names to follow are tight end TJ Hawkinson and wide receiver Josh Reynolds. Amon Ross St. Brown got in a limited practice, but it was eventually reported that he did not suffer a concussion in Week 7, while DeAndre Swift returned to a full practice. Both defenses run man coverage at elevated rates. The Lions rank first, the Dolphins rank third in man coverage rates. Tyreek Hill against primary man coverage is not likely to go well for the Lions. Detroit's top overall second-half pace of play hints at the upside potential of this game. How Miami will try to win. Gauging the intent of the Miami offense has been difficult considering the turnover at the quarterback position. Consider this. The Dolphins have finished only three games with the same quarterback that started the game this season. They are 3-0 in those games. Tua Tagovailoa was forced from Week 3's contest with his back and neck injury. He was forced from Week 4's contest with a concussion. Teddy Bridgewater then started Week 5 before leaving after just one snap with a concussion. Skylar Thompson then started Week 6 before leaving in the second quarter, passing the baton back to Bridgewater. On the one hand, we have a Dolphins offense that has been at or above league average and pass rate over expectation in all three of Tua's full games played, barely in Week 7. On the other hand, we have coach speak indicating they want to operate a run-balanced offense. Either way, it's difficult to make sweeping statements regarding the intent of this team with only three games of normal operating procedures. As such, it's probably a good idea to view the Dolphins similarly to the way we were projecting other teams in Week 4, with a wider range of potential outcomes with respect to team intent. Their overall 63.92% pass rate ranks 5th in the league through 7 weeks, carrying the obvious caveats previously mentioned. That said, we should get a good glimpse at their true intentions this week against a Lions defense that can basically be beaten any way the Dolphins choose. Finally, the Dolphins rank near the middle of the pack in first-half pace of play, overall pace of play, and situation-neutral pace of play. Head coach Mike McDaniel has a relative embarrassment of riches when it comes to dynamic skill position players, with each of Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddell, and Raheem Mostert all amongst the fastest players in the league. Mostert emerged as the unquestioned lead back in Week 4, averaging a 68.5% snap rate and 19 running back opportunities per game over the last four contests. Of note here, Mostert has run the ninth most routes at the running back position this year, yet averages just under three targets per game, 3.25 per game over the last four. Expect Chase Edmonds to serve as the clear change of pace back, seemingly miles behind Mostert. The pure rushing matchup yields an above-average 4.35 net adjusted line yards metric against a Lions defense allowing a robust 5.41 running back yards per carry. 
Finally, the Lions have allowed 10 rushing scores on the season, most in the league. Tyreek Hill leads the league in targets per route run rate, 35.5%, and ranks second in team target market share, 32.4%, while Jalen Waddell checks in at 24.7% and 22% respectively. The duo leads the league in total receiving between a team's top two options with 1,394 receiving yards. That said, Waddell has just two games with double-digit targets, while Tyreek Hill has hit double-digit looks in all but two games. Notably, four of the five combined touchdowns between the two have come in the one blow-up game against the Ravens, likely indicating there is meat yet left on the bone for these two once touchdown variance swings in their favor. The $22 million wide receiver Cedric Wilson has been beaten out by Trent Sherfield for the wide receiver three role, while Mike Gusecki has been relegated to a standard range of snaps of 40 to 60% due to his shortcomings as a blocker. Gusecki could see an uptick in snaps this week should blocking tight end Durham Smythe miss with a hamstring injury, DNP on Wednesday. The Dolphins have run above average 21 personnel rates through the utilization of fullback Alec Ingold this season, playing primarily from 11 and 21 personnel. Finally, Tyree Kill grades as the top wide receiver per PFF against man coverage this season, and the Lions run man coverage more than any team in the league. Hill should have no problem shaking Jeff Okuda and Amani Oruwarie on first read passes. How Detroit will try to win. There is a stark difference between Detroit's situation neutral pace of play, 18th ranked 31.21 seconds per play, and their first half pace of play, 22nd ranked 29.22 seconds per play, and their second half pace of play, first ranked 24.42 seconds per play, indicating a couple of things for us. One, how they want to try and win and how they are forced to try and win are two different things. And two, they are not afraid to dial up the aggression in their hunt for a win. Those are two positive indicators when we consider targeting game environments in which they are involved as it provides additional outs or paths towards fantasy goodness. The Lions have been at or below league average in pass rate over expectation, PROE, in all but one game this season, Week 2's Amon Rao St. Brown eruption against the Commanders. One thing to watch for with respect to the Lions' expected offensive game plan is the status of Dolphins corner Xavier Howard, who reappeared on the injury report with a groin injury on Wednesday after struggling through injuries to both groins over the first five weeks of the season. Most notably, the Dolphins have not altered their man-heavy coverage emphasis through secondary injuries this season, meaning we could see elevated man coverage numbers with backup corners this week. One positive between head coach Dan Campbell and offensive coordinator Ben Johnson is they are above average game planners, just not so good at in-game management, meaning it is likely they are tracking the Dolphins' injury developments closely. DeAndre Swift is off the injury report. Hallelujah. Swift appears set for his first game action since injuring his ankle and shoulder in Week 3 this week, likely to step back into a 65% plus snap rate role as the lead back in Detroit. Expect Jamal Williams to retreat to change of pace duties after serving as the de facto lead back for the past three games. Although an extremely small sample size, Swift leads all backs in yards per carry this season at a massive 8.6 yards per tote, which is mostly a benefit to the expected efficiency of the offense as a whole. The pure rushing matchup yields a slightly above average 4.395 net adjusted line yards metric against a Miami defense yielding only 3.7 yards per running back carry this season. After Swift saw 13 targets through two and a half games earlier this year, the Lions have targeted their running backs only 20 more times, which could increase here with Swift's return along with injuries to their pass-catching core. Speaking of those injuries, 
Rookie Jamison Williams is reportedly still more than a month away from game action. DJ Shark and Quintez Cephas are on IR, and Josh Reynolds missed Wednesday's practice with a knee injury after playing through an ankle injury each of the last two weeks. An absence or limited showing from Reynolds would mean additional snaps for Khalif Raymond and a likely bump to the targets per route run rates of TJ Hawkinson and DeAndre Swift, with Amon Ross St. Brown continuing a high-volume role. It is highly likely we see the aerial aggression pick up as the game moves on for the Lions, considering the likeliest outcome for the game environment and flow. St. Brown saw a streak of seven consecutive double-digit target games snapped in Week 3 of this season, dating back to last season, when he suffered an ankle injury. After missing Week 4, he played through the injury to little effect in Week 5, before suffering a thought-to-be concussion early in Week 7, following their Week 6 bye. Basically, St. Brown is the engine of this offense when healthy, and he finally appears to be heading into Week 8. The Dolphins allow 39.3 DK points per game to opposing wide receivers, the sixth most DK points per game to opposing quarterbacks, and have a laundry list of injuries in their secondary. The potential is there for the Lions this week. Likeliest Game Flow It is likely we see the Dolphins find offensive success throughout here, meaning the ultimate game flow and environment is likely up to the Lions to dictate. As in, Miami scoring early and often, and the Lions failing to do so, could lead to a game flow where Miami can largely take their foot off the gas in the second half. In contrast, early Lions offensive success could lead to an absolute eruption spot. Accounting for each of these potential outcomes should be considered a priority based on the makeup of this slate, with Raheem Mostert and Tyree Kill viable in each instance. As we've seen throughout the season, the Lions are willing and able to turn up the aggression if forced to do so, ranked first in second half pace of play this season, which presents a good opportunity for this game environment to reach its pinnacle upside. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Cardinals at Vikings. Kickoff Sunday, October 30th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 49. Game Overview by Hilo. Both defenses present pass-funnel paths of least resistance, and both offenses tilt toward the air. Both teams rank top 10 in first-half pace of play and top 6 in overall pace of play. Both offenses rank top 11 in drive success rate on offense and in the bottom half of the league in drive success rate allowed on defense. Minnesota 18th. Arizona 27th. The recipe is present for this game environment to erupt. How Arizona will try to win. We know exactly what Cliff Kingsbury's air raid offense is at this point. The Cardinals utilize an elevated pace of play, fourth overall pace of play, and fifth and first half pace of play, and spread the field horizontally, hoping to open up downfield passing from there. The problem is they haven't opened up downfield passing at all this season, with the team electing to utilize Marquise Brown in a more possession-style role when DeAndre Hopkins was out of the lineup due to suspension, and then electing to utilize Rondell Moore as a perimeter-wide receiver with Hopkins back and Brown out due to an injury. Make it make sense! That is a very clear indication that Kingsbury is attempting to fit square pegs into round holes as he attempts to force various players into his scheme as opposed to maximizing the talent he has on the field through unique game plans. Hence the fake sharp moniker tattooed to his face by the fantasy community. To be fair, it is accurate. The good news for the Cardinals is they expect starting running back James Conner back from a rib injury that forced him to miss the last two games. 
Interestingly enough, the Cardinals have been at or below league average in pass rate over expectation in all but one game this season. Ranked 15th, 61.18% overall pass rate, which makes little sense considering the offensive composition of this team. The logical next thought would be to look to their defensive metrics as a potential sign, but their unit currently ranks 27th in the league in points allowed per game at 25.1. One positive of their defensive scheme is the relative erasure of opposing wide receiver ones this season, with Chris Olave the first to break 100 yards receiving against them this season, and it came through 14 targets on a season-high 71 offensive plays run from scrimmage for the Saints last week. Cardinals backs have averaged only 19.4 fantasy points per game through seven games on an average of 32.4 running back opportunities per game, 25.1 carries per game, and 7.3 targets per game. That's astoundingly poor. James Conner's 3.7 true yards per carry ranks 56th in the league, and his 4.5 yards per touch value ranks 34th in the league, and the backfield is likely going to have to contend with three members of their offensive line being out. Not great, Bob. I think we can safely assume Connor will return to a 60-65% to 65% snap rate player this week, backed up by Eno Benjamin as a strict change of pace and clear passing down back. The pure rushing matchup yields an average 4.32 net adjusted line yards metric against a Minnesota defense holding opposing backs to just 3.95 yards per carry this season. There are so many confusing moving parts in this pass offense primarily due to Cliff's insistence on forcing his pass catchers into roles they aren't best suited for. One positive development was the absolute feeding of DeAndre Hopkins in his first game back. Nuke saw an unsustainable yet beautiful 52.8% targets per route run rate and 48.3% of the team's available targets last week, even playing 22.8% of his snaps from the slot. That said, His modest 9.4 ADOT and week 1.1 yards after the catch per reception highlight the low upside routes he continues to be asked to run, meaning he will need volume and touchdowns to return a GPP-worthy score in a standard week. Rondale Moore was confusingly thrust into a perimeter role in week 7 in the absence of Marquise Brown, playing 86% of his snaps out wide. That is likely to change once newcomer Robbie Anderson gets up to speed in the offense, but it remains to be seen when that will be. As in, once Anderson gets the playbook down, it is likely he operates in the Z role, shifting more back to his more natural slot role. Sorry, it just made little sense to me that the obvious perimeter wide receiver in AJ Green wouldn't play perimeter snaps, even though he's old, slow, and sucks, while Moore would be left to his natural role last week. I digress. Either way, Green's days appear numbered in Arizona, with the team clearly shopping him before Tuesday's trade deadline. Against a Vikings defense that is amongst the league leaders in zone coverage rate this season, it stands to reason that Moore could see an uptick in targets out of the slot this week, assuming he returns to that role. Cardinals running backs have accounted for 51 total targets this season, which ranks 11th in the league. Finally, Zach Ertz's splits with and without DeAndre Hopkins are stark, a trend that continued last week as he saw just four looks after seeing double-digit targets in four of six contests without Nuke to start the season. How Minnesota will try to win. There are five teams in the NFL with a pass rate over expectation of league average or higher in every game played this season. The Bills, Chiefs, Chargers, Rams, and these Vikings. That has equated to a robust 63.76% overall pass rate through seven weeks, good for the sixth highest rate in the league. They also hold the second highest pass rate over expectation in the red zone this season, yet Kirk Cousins has thrown only nine touchdowns through six games, 
with no more than two in any contest. The 5-1 Vikings' only loss came in Week 2 against the still-undefeated Eagles. Furthermore, the Vikings play at an elevated pace of play, ranking 6th overall, 8th in first-half pace of play, 2nd in pace of play with the game within 6 points, and 10th in situation-neutral pace of play. Finally, Cousins has attempted 30 or more passes in every game this season, one of only three quarterbacks to do that this year, Matt Ryan, Justin Herbert, and Kirk Cousins. It is clear where head coach and former quarterback Kevin O'Connell's offensive tendencies lie. Basically, pace plus a passing lean gives weekly upside. Upside that has largely been untapped to date due to a defense allowing only 19.7 points per game through six contests. The run game has largely struggled with consistency this season and has moved away from Dalvin Cook in a bell cow role. Cook has had two games seeing 77% or more of the offensive snaps and four games within the 57 to 69% range. He has gone over 20 running back opportunities only once all season, week one, regardless of game flow. We were expecting the increased pass rates thought to come with O'Connell's offense to offset the likely decrease in snap rate and rush attempts for Cook this season, which has not been the case. The Vikings have fed their backs only 32 total targets this season, only half of which have gone to Dalvin. Under three targets per game is not enough to offset the moderate rushing efficiency, 4.5 true yards per carry, 4.8 yards per carry, and 5 yards per touch, and decreased opportunity share, 72.8% this season, compared to 79.7 in 2021 and 79.9 in 2020. Alexander Madison will serve as the change of pace back while fullback CJ Ham has seen sporadic usage, largely dependent on the matchup. Expect Dalvin to land in the 20-22 running back opportunity range as a large portion of his expected range of outcomes, leaving him reliant on yardage and touchdowns, like most backs in today's game, due to the modest pass game role. The matchup yields a slightly above average 4.455 net adjusted line yards metric against a Cardinals defense surrendering just 4.35 yards per running back carry. Justin Jefferson has been in a route on every single pass play this season, leading to a robust 30% team target market share, 7th in the league, and an okay for a wide receiver 1, 27.5% targets per route run rate, good for 17th. Jefferson's modest 8.68 dot has changed dramatically compared to last season, 12.0, introducing further paths to failure against a Cardinals defense that has largely erased opposing wide receiver ones this season. Adam Thielen has been in a route on a robust 97.8% of Minnesota's pass plays, 11th at the position, but has seen a modest 19.2% targets per route run and 20.5% team target market share. His 9.0 ADOT also means he requires additional volume and touchdowns to hit, which a solid 24.3% red zone target market share is likely to offset at some point this season. For comparison, Justin Jefferson holds a 27% red zone target market share. Due to the heavy red zone role, a team that likes to pass in the red zone, second highest red zone rate over expectation, and underperformance from quarterback Kirk Cousins in the red zone, there will be a slate or two that Thielen absolutely wrecks at some point this season. Tight end Irv Smith is seeing only modest usage to this point in the season, responsible for a 59.4% route participation rate, 21.3% targets per route run rate, and 13.8% team target market share. Finally, K.J. Osborne is in a route at a 79% clip and is seeing only modest usage through a 12.4% team target market share and an 8.1% red zone target share. The Cardinals have allowed an insane 21.0 DK points per game to opposing tight ends 
and have allowed above-average production to opposing wide receiver twos. Likeliest game flow. It is likeliest we see some fireworks here. It's just less likely to come via the places the field is likeliest to be looking. Although Justin Jefferson can beat any matchup, the defensive scheme of the Cardinals has clamped down on opposing wide receiver ones all season, making it likely we see additional pass volume flow through Adam Thielen, Irv Smith, and K.J. Osborne, likely in that order. The matchup against the prevent defense of the Vikings tilts expected pass volume to the short to intermediate areas of the field, the same areas the Cardinals already attack heavily. That said, there is merit to expecting the Vikings to adjust slightly unless or until the Cardinals show they can attack the deeper areas of the field. A couple of deep shots to speedster Robbie Anderson should be all it takes to keep the Vikings honest, which would filter additional volume to DeAndre Hopkins, Rondell Moore, and potentially Zach Ertz, assuming Anderson sees his snap rate increase, which moves Moore to a more natural slot role. We must also acknowledge that there are a lot of assumptions present there, meaning there are paths present to the Cardinals failing, which would sap most of the upside out of the game environment entirely. Look to late-week ownership expectations when deciding how to handle this one. Raiders at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, October 30th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 50. Game Overview by Hilo. Both teams rank in the bottom 12 in first-half pace of play, with the Saints jumping to 9th overall, 26.91 seconds per play, due to routinely negative game script, and the Raiders content to slow things down at 22nd overall, 28.56 seconds per play. New Orleans ranks 7th in net drive success rate, DSR, while Las Vegas ranks 20th. Las Vegas also has one of the largest deltas in DSR in the league, at 4th in offensive DSR and 30th in defensive DSR. Michael Thomas, Jarvis Landry, Adam Troutman, and Marshawn Lattimore remained DNPs to start the week for the Saints. As we've discussed in this space before, a DNP to start the week following a missed game or games does not historically bode well for a return to action. Darren Waller returned to a limited session on Wednesday following a missed game and the team's bye week. How Las Vegas will try to win. The Raiders lead the league in yards created by their offensive line, locking to a 5.69 adjusted line yards metric, first, 73% power success rate, seventh, 11% stuff rate, second, and 1.78 second-level yards, first. It makes sense that they have done what they can to slow games down considering the dominance of their offensive line, checking in with 22nd overall pace of play and 27th-ranked first-half pace of play. They started the season with a pass rate over expectation, PROE, above the NFL average in Week 1, but have been at or below league average in each subsequent week. Even with that, their 61.31% overall pass rate ranks in the middle of the league at 14th. That said, their pass rate over the previous three weeks falls all the way down to 51.89%, but their pass rate on the road stands at a lofty 68.36%, which would rank as the top overall value this season ahead of the Bucks. It seems some bug is running through the team this week as four players missed Wednesday's practice with an illness, including wide receiver Devontae Adams. Also notable was the return to a limited practice for tight end Darren Waller after being held out of action through the team's Week 6 bye and into Week 7 after injuring his hamstring in Week 5. In all, I'd expect the team to continue riding the run game for as long as it is working moving forward, which helps to hide a defense getting run over, 30th in defensive DSR. The Las Vegas backfield has turned into a Jacobs workhorse situation as the unquestioned leadback has surged to account for an average of 83.33% of the offensive snaps and 28 running back opportunities over the previous three weeks. 
Brandon Bolden remained active in Week 7, but didn't see an offensive snap, with the team instead utilizing Amir Abdullah and Zamir White sparingly behind Jacobs. Fullback Jacob Johnson typically sees between 30 and 40% of the offensive snaps for a team utilizing 21 personnel at one of the highest rates in the league. The pure rushing matchup yields an absolutely absurd 5.11 net adjusted line yards metric against a Saints defense surrendering a robust 4.75 yards per running back carry this season. Devontae Adams has been in a route on 100% of the passing plays for the Raiders this year, tied with Justin Jefferson for the league lead. Duh. His 32% team target market share ranks fourth in the league, while his 41.9% red zone target market share leads the league by a wide margin. Darren Waller returned to a limited session on Wednesday, but has seen his snap rate and involvement scaled back this season, poor 73% route participation rate, 14% team target market share, and 17.8% targets per route run rate. Hunter Renfro is sadly in the same bucket with a 20.5% targets per route run rate and an 18.4% team target market share. Basically, this pass game has transformed into Devontae Adams and then everyone else on top of the newfound focus on the run game. That leaves very little meat on the bone for all of Waller, Renfro, and wide receiver 3 Mac Hollins. The matchup against the Lattimoreless Saints is a good one as the Saints haven't largely altered their defensive game plan, sticking right above league average in man coverage rates through Lattimore's absence. How New Orleans will try to win The Saints are one of the few teams to remain at or below league average in PROE in every game this season, which is reflected in their below-average overall pass rate of 58.26%. They rank near-league average in both offensive and defensive drive success rate, bottom half of the league in first-half pace of play, but jump all the way to ninth in overall pace of play, indicating a willingness to open things up when required, which is a good thing for us. Andy Dalton has been named the starting quarterback for Week 8, even with a healthy Jameis Winston, likely due in part to his lower propensity to turn the ball over. The Saints have averaged 31 points per game across Dalton's four starts this season, and Dalton's 7-4 touchdown-to-interception ratio is a marked improvement over Winston's 4-5 ratio. Expect the Saints to start with a ground-based attack with the caveat that they are not afraid to attack aggressively through the air if forced via game environment. Alvin Kamara has seen a snap rate of 70% or more in four of five healthy games this season, averaging 24.75 running back opportunities, including 7.75 targets per game since week three. Thusly, he brings one of the highest floors to the table at the running back position, particularly considering he has averaged 17.9 DK points per game during that span without finding the end zone. He is also one of the few backs in the league that has a path to the mythical double bonus on DK, rushing and receiving. Mark Ingram remains the change of pace back for a team that has exactly nine snaps all season from 21 personnel. The rushing matchup yields a well above average 4.61 net adjusted line yards metric behind an offensive line blocking to 16% more adjusted line yards than their backs are averaging per carry. Michael Thomas, Jarvis Landry, and Adam Troutman remained off the practice field to open the week. We've seen Chris Olave emerge as the true alpha in their absences, followed by Marquez Calloway, tight end Juwan Johnson, and Traquan Smith, in that order of usage. When you break down the recent usage, we're left with a case of Olave and Kamara, and then everyone else, as far as volume goes, with the two combining for an insane 51 targets across three healthy games for each with Dalton at quarterback. That's 17 targets per game combined between the two. 
Furthermore, the Raiders are in man coverage at the fifth highest rate in the league this season, which boosts the potential for splash plays against. Likeliest game flow. It is likely the Raiders find offensive success, particularly considering the fact they have averaged 33 points per game over their previous three games since altering the offensive philosophy to a more ground-heavy approach. That leaves the door open for New Orleans to be the primary driver of overall game environment, which bodes well considering how poorly the Raiders' defense has played to this point in the season. Now consider that the Saints have averaged 31 points per game over their previous four contests with Andy Dalton as their starting quarterback, and we start to see a clear path to this game breaking open. Josh Jacobs, Devontae Adams, Alvin Kamara, and Chris Olave, assuming Thomas and Landry remain out, can all be considered high upside pieces on this slate. Patriots at Jets. Kickoff Sunday, October 30th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Pappy. The best DFS plays from this game are probably the defenses. Michael Carter is unlikely to handle a workhorse role even in his first game without Brees Hall. Ramondre Stevenson dominated snaps last week, but that doesn't mean he necessarily will this week. This is a poor overall game environment for DFS. How New England will try to win. The 3-4 and four Patriots come into Week 8 in sole possession of last place in the AFC East, fresh off getting stomped by the previously unable to score Bears on Monday night. After two decades of dominance, the Pats have watched the Bills take over the division, and this year they have slipped behind both the Jets and the Dolphins. As someone who has spent most of his life assuming the Patriots would get a first-round playoff bye, it's hard to remove the idea of the Patriots from the current team, but that is what must be done to accurately assess them. The past three seasons have shown that the Patriots' on-field success, while contributed to by Bill Belichick, was not because of Bill Belichick, as quarterback performance simply impacts the outcome more than anything a coach can do from the sidelines. As William McGinnis recently said in a documentary about the Patriots, we weren't winning because Troy Brown was playing nickel corner. Belichick has always been adaptable on offense, which last week meant changing QBs after Mac Jones looked bad at home against a Bears team the Patriots were expected to beat. Although Belichick was non-committal about who is going to start this week after the game, Mac Jones has received 90% of the first-team reps and appears likely to start against the Jets. Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, and presumably Belichick himself have been running the offense. The Pats have played slow, 31st in total pace, want to play slow, 27th in situation neutral pace, and stay slow in all situations, playing the fastest one ahead, 21st in pace when leading. None of Patricia, Belichick, or Judge are great offensive minds, and this team is suffering greatly from the loss of Josh McDaniels. While some of their woes can be chalked up to losing Mac Jones the past month, their offense hasn't looked explosive at any point during the season and is likely to maintain their run-the-damn-ball mentality. The Jets' defense has really come on, holding the Steelers, Dolphins, Packers, and Broncos all to 20 points or less. While that isn't a list of offensive juggernauts, neither are the Patriots. The Jets rank well against the pass, 10th in DVOA, and above average against the run, 14th in DVOA. The Patriots tend to adapt to their opponents, but when there is no obvious area to attack, they'll default to what they do best, which is running the ball. The Patriots' O-line has been excellent, third-ranked by PFF to start the season, with right tackle being the only real weak spot. Marcus Cannon replaced Isaiah Wynn, but Cannon allowed three pressures against a bad Bears pass rush on Monday night. The Jets prefer to play cover three and get pressure with their front four, which they've been excellent at this season, ranking 6th in pressure rate and 31st in blitz rate. The Patriots would be wise to try and run them out of it and force the Jets to abandon their shell zone coverages, 
That strategy fits perfectly with how the Pats want to play and are likely to attack on the ground, unless forced to the air by the scoreboard. How New York will try to win. The 5-2 Jets come into Week 8 tied with the Chiefs for the second-best record in the AFC. Unfortunately, they share the AFC East with the Bills, so they also have the second-best record in their division. The Jets have an impressive record, but their five wins have come in mostly close games against Jacoby Brissett, Mitchell Trubisky, Skyler, I couldn't keep it close, Thompson, Aaron Rodgers, and Brett Rippon at QB, with two confident losses against Joe Burrow and Lamar Jackson. That is a weak list of victories other than Rodgers, who hasn't looked like himself this season. The Jets aren't as good as their record, but things stay easy this week against a Patriots offense figuring out their QB midweek. The Jets play quickly, fifth in total pace, but are willing to play moderately, 16th in neutral pace, when things are close. Despite beating a list of backup QBs, Robert Sala deserves credit for molding his team into his image. Sala comes from teams that want to run the ball on offense and get pressure with their front four on defense while settling into a press cover three on the back end. That is exactly the type of team he has built in New York, and it has worked well enough to finally give the Jets faithful hope. Unfortunately for Sala's Jets, they lost two significant parts of their identity last week, in Aliyah Vera Tucker and Brees Hall. The Jets' O-line has been decimated by injuries, 30th ranked by PFF, and has had nine different guys play significant snaps. Their deficiencies were being covered up by the play of their electric rookie running back, but now he is lost for the season as well. The Patriots have been strong against the pass, 5th in DVOA, but abused on the ground, 28th in DVOA, profiling as one of the clearest run funnels in the league. That sets up perfectly for how the Jets would like to attack, and there is every reason to expect them to try and win on the ground, even without Brees Hall. Salah has shown that he has no intention of cutting Zach frightened child Wilson loose unless forced and the Patriots' scary man coverage should encourage him to stick to this strategy. Expect the Jets to try and follow the formula that brought them to 5-2, and two, running the ball and playing defense. Likeliest Game Flow This game opened with one of the lowest totals on the slate, 41, and has been bet down slightly, 40.5, to open the week. Those numbers make sense since this is predicted to be a matchup between two suspect passing attacks with coaching staffs that want to run the ball and play defense. More interesting than the low total is the spread. The 5-2 at-home Jets opened as dogs, plus 1.5, and and it has been bet even further, plus 2.5, against the 3-4 Patriots who just got embarrassed 33-14 on Monday night. Bet is in quotes because according to sportsbookreview.com, 67% of wagers have been placed on the Jets. This is a classic game that opened with a fishy line and is showing reverse line movement, essentially daring you to bet on the Jets. These games almost always seem to play out with the team Vegas is daring you to bet on playing poorly, and this game has all the hallmarks of a spot where the public will misinterpret what is most likely to happen. Why? The Jets aren't as good as their record, and just lost two important pieces of an already fragile offense. The Patriots aren't as bad as they looked in front of the country on Monday night, and set up well to be able to run the Jets out of their preferred defense. This game is likely to play out with the Jets struggling on offense and the Patriots taking a confident lead into the fourth quarter before falling on the ball. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Steelers at the Eagles kick off Sunday, October 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Hilo 
The Eagles should be able to run their game plan here, with the Steelers highly unlikely to push them in any way. Philadelphia ranks second in total DVOA, while Pittsburgh ranks 25th. Philadelphia ranks second in net points per drive, while Pittsburgh ranks dead last. Philadelphia ranks first in turnover differential, while Pittsburgh ranks 24th. The Philadelphia side of this game is likely going to be one of the major decision points for the field on this slate. How Pittsburgh will try to win The Steelers run a below-average pace of play in both situation-neutral pace of play and first-half pace of play, but jump all the way up to 7th in the league in second-half pace of play. Their ninth ranked pass rate over expectation feigns aerial aggression, but the fact of the matter is the team would prefer to utilize a more run-balanced offense. The problem is twofold thus far. Their offensive line has performed much better while pass-blocking compared to run-blocking, and they have found themselves in routinely negative game scripts. This has led to the team attempting 52 and 44 passes in rookie quarterback Kenny Pickett's two full games. The likeliest scenario yields a similar setup against the undefeated Eagles, who should control the game from both sides of the ball early, likely leading to increased pass attempts from Pickett as the game moves on. Najee Harris has two games this season with a snap rate below 69%, 59% in Week 1, and 49% in a Week 5 trouncing at the hands of the Bills, 38-3. to His 78.2% backfield opportunity share ranks 6th at the position. The problem is his true yards per carry value ranks 65th, his yards per touch value ranks 56th, and his breakaway run rate ranks 44th at the position. Efficiency has never been the name of the game for Najee, but he's pushing it to new levels in his second year in the league. Now consider the routine negative game script and only 22 targets on the season, and we're left with a back averaging just 10.8 fantasy points per game, 27th. Things will not get any easier for Najee against the stout 4-3 front of the Eagles. The pure rushing matchup yields a non-terrible 4.48 net adjusted line yards metric behind an offensive line blocking to only 3.5 running back yards per carry this season. Expect undrafted free agent Jalen Warren to continue serving as the change of pace back behind Najee, typically only good for a handful of running back opportunities in a standard week. Deontay Johnson is still very much the wide receiver one on this team, despite what any hype train would have you believe. The problem is that Mitchell Trubisky's 9.9, third in the league, average intended air yards did not mesh well with the areas of the field Johnson has been utilized in. Pickett has a more natural 7.1 average intended air yards, but the problem with him is he has had very few repetitions with Johnson as the team prepared for a complete season with Trubisky as their starting quarterback. Overall, Deontay has seen the fourth most targets at the position this season, 67, is in a route on virtually every passing play, 99.6%, and has seen an okay 10.5 A dot this season. Again, the biggest problem with efficiency, as he sports a ghastly 0.5 average yards after the catch per target, poor 8.9 yards per reception, 90th, and horrendous 1.3 yards per route run, 70th. Interestingly enough, Fullback Derek Watt was reassigned to a three-year deal to remain with the team, and the team has elected to forego 21 personnel almost entirely this season, instead electing to run 11 personnel at an above-average rate. 
That has meant that rookie George Pickens is on the field about 80% of the time, while perimeter-turned-slot-wide receiver Chase Claypool has seen snap rates typically landing in the 85-95% to 95% range. Second-year tight end Pat Fryermuth is the unquestioned pass-catching tight end, while Zach Gentry typically sees 30-40% to 40% of the offensive snaps as the blocking tight end. The Eagles' mix-and-match coverage concepts, playing about league-average man coverage via their elite cornerback trio of Darius Slay, James Bradbury, and Avante Maddox. Safeties Marcus Epps and C.J. Gardner-Johnson are athletic safeties that are capable performers in every defensive alignment they are asked to play. Expect moderate blit rates to start that are likely to get more aggressive as the game goes on, likely making life extremely difficult for Pickett on the Steelers' offensive line. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win The Eagles have been a team of two halves this season, primarily due to how effective their offense has been and how great their defense is playing with the lead. In the first half of games this season, Philadelphia has played at the league's second fastest pace of play, 26.31 seconds per play, and has scored the most points in the league, 21.0 points per game in the first half. Their second half pace of play plummets to a 31st ranked 30.82 seconds per play, and they have scored only 5.8 points per game in the second half through seven weeks, which ranks 30th in the league. The only game in which the Eagles scored 10 or more points in the second half this year was the opening game shootout against the Lions, where they were continually pushed by Detroit, and yet they still stand as the league's only unbeaten team. The problem for us as fantasy players is we can't fully predict when the next game comes that will see them get pushed, as their upcoming schedule has them hosting the Steelers this week, visiting the Texans on Thursday Night Football in Week 9, hosting the Commanders in Week 10, visiting the 3-3-1 Colts with a change at quarterback in Week 11, and hosting the reeling Packers in Week 12. Finally, their PROE has hovered around league average for the entirety of the season, and when combined with routinely positive game scripts, this has left them with an average of only 30.7 pass attempts per game, 24th in the league. After starting the season in a rough three-way timeshare at running back, Miles Sanders has emerged as the unquestioned lead back. Take that with a grain of salt due to the heavy rush game involvement from quarterback Jalen Hurts averaging a healthy 65.5% snap rate and 20.75 running back opportunities per game since week three. Even then, his eight total targets over those four games have left Sanders as primarily a yardage and touchdown back, and one who must contend with a mobile quarterback that has scored six rushing touchdowns on the season. Finally, Sanders' average of 3.75 red zone opportunities per game since he took over as the unquestioned lead back in Week 3 ranks 5th in the league over that time, behind only his quarterback Jalen Hurts, 5.0, Joe Mixon, 4.8, Alvin Kamara, 4.0, and Austin Eckler, 3.8. It's an interesting profile to consider when we expect Jalen Hurts to garner some hefty ownership on a slate largely devoid of pay-up options at the position. Expect Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott to mix in behind Sanders, with neither running back seeing consistent volume, one game combined over seven running back opportunities. The pure rushing matchup yields a 4.37 net adjusted line yards metric, which lands right around league average on the season. A.J. Brown is far and away the top option through the air, responsible for a 30.6% team target market share and a 31.7% targets per route run rate. 
Devonta Smith checks in behind Brown with 24.9% and 24.4% marks in those two metrics, respectively. Most interestingly, both players currently hold a modest 9.4 ADOT, while both have only two games of double-digit targets through six weeks. Both have also gone over 100 yards receiving only once. Basically, although Brown's numbers appear gaudy on paper, he ranks 5th in team target market share and 6th in targets route per run. The low overall pass volume has made it so neither has an overwhelmingly clear path to ceiling. You have to be extremely efficient on standard range of outcomes of 7-9 to nine targets, as in the case for Brown, or 4-7 to seven targets, as in the case for Smith. Brown carries a much higher weekly floor with the additional target market share, but each should truly be considered modest floor, high ceiling options that are likely priced too high for their standard range of outcomes. As such, optimal theory would dictate playing either with their quarterback, if you play them in DFS, as their primary contributors to fantasy goodness are efficiency and touchdowns, which directly correlate to their quarterback scoring. That entire discussion is typically something we would reserve for the DFS Plus interpretation section, but I wanted to make sure that everyone with access to OWS Free had a chance to read it as something of a sneak peek into some behind-the-curtain analysis for this game, because the Eagle side is likely going to be a major decision point on a slate largely devoid of top-end quarterbacks. Kez Watkins should continue in the wide receiver 3 role for the Eagles, typically good for about 60% of the offensive snaps. Finally, Dallas Goddard has emerged as the true every-down NFL tight end, but the modest 22.1% targets per route run rate and 19.7% team target market share, when combined with the overall low pass volume from this offense, has left him with only one game all season with more than six targets. To close this discussion, the field is likely to view this matchup as an extreme plus against a Steelers defense allowing the second most fantasy points per game to opposing wide receivers. But we have to factor team composition and tendencies into our decision-making matrix, something the field might miss this week. Likeliest Game Flow It is highly likely we see the efficiency of the Eagles' offense combined with the aggression of their defense to create an environment where Philadelphia is allowed to control the tempo, environment, and flow. That is highly likely to mirror their season-to-date standard week environment, with increased time of possession, pace of play, scoring in the first half, and a second half game plan that allows their defense to take over. While that limits the overall fantasy appeal of this game, it does place their defense in an amazing spot to rack up fantasy points as it should lend a couple of additional possessions to the Steelers and their mistake-prone rookie quarterback. That said, the Pittsburgh offensive line has been surprisingly well above average in pass-blocking metrics, surrendering only 15 total sacks through six games. Finally, Kenny Pickett has been asked to throw the football 44 and 52 times in his two full NFL games, which presents additional opportunities for sacks and turnovers to pile up. The Titans at the Texans kick off Sunday, October 30th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This is not a good situation for the Texans' run defense. The Titans have been stout against the run, but beatable through the air, creating a bit of a pass-funnel situation for opposing offenses. The Texans have been surprisingly competitive this season, and have shown an ability to keep games close throughout. After a slow start to the season, the Titans have rattled off four straight victories to take control of the AFC South. How Tennessee Will Try to Win 
The Titans rank 30th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation and 29th in the NFL in situation-neutral pace of play. This is an old-school NFL team that is built to win behind their defense and running game. While this approach will likely not allow them to make any deep playoff runs, they have the personnel and scheme to make it extremely viable for controlling their talent-deficient division. After a sloppy 0-2 start to the season, the Titans have rallied off four straight victories and stand alone at the top of the division, having also won both matchups with their toughest competition, the Colts. Not coincidentally, this run of success has correlated with a heavy dose of the big dog Derrick Henry. Henry has opportunity counts of 33, 30, 27, and 26 in his last four games, an average of 29 chances to touch the ball per game. The Titans have also been trying to get Henry the ball in the passing game more this year due to their lack of playmakers in the receiving core, as Henry has averaged four targets per game during this recent stretch after only receiving two targets per game over the past three seasons. The Texans' run defense has been laughably bad, ranking bottom five in the league in DVOA, yards per carry allowed, PFF run defense grade, and PFF tackling grade. This is not the type of defense that is built to slow down the most physically dominant running back in the game. We know how the Titans want to control the game, and nothing about this matchup would sway them from sticking to their approach. Some play-action passes are likely on intermediate throws against a Texans defense that generally keeps things in front of them, but will likely bite hard on play-action due to the focus on containing Derrick Henry. Given the Texans' struggles against the run and the fact that they know how the Titans will approach this game, it would stand to reason that they will load the box with extra defenders to stop the run. However, the Texans have struggled with tackling this season, meaning that all it will take is one or two broken tackles and Henry will be in the open field with no defenders in sight. How Houston Will Try to Win The Texans' record does not accurately reflect how competitive their games have been, as they have led or been tied in the fourth quarter of five of six games this season, their 34-24 loss to the Chargers being the only week they failed to do so. The Texans have had balanced approaches on offense, passing right around the expected rate based on their game scripts, and have played with slightly above average pace of play. The offense has evolved and rookie running back Damian Pierce is now the clear offensive centerpiece, with opportunity, carries plus targets, counts of 24, 31, 20, and 22 over the last four weeks since head coach Lovey Smith made the commitment to Pierce as their lead runner. Those opportunities reflect the Texans giving the ball to Pierce on 37%, 55%, 34%, and 39% of their offensive plays, quite the workload for a fourth-round rookie. Davis Mills has been inconsistent in his sophomore season, ranking 25th and 24th in the NFL in yards per pass attempt and QB rating, respectively. The Texans are likely to attempt to ride Pierce again this week, as a 20-touch floor seems pretty locked in unless the game script gets completely out of hand. However, given the ability that the Texans have shown of keeping games close, and the lack of passing efficiency for the Titans, it is reasonable to expect the Texans to be able to stick with their game plan for at least three quarters. The matchup with the Titans' defense will make that game plan somewhat difficult, as the Titans have shut off the run pretty well this season, and they are unlikely to be scared of the threat of Mills beating them through the air. The Titans' run defense ranks third in DVOA and fourth in PFF grade, which makes it critical for Mills to connect on a couple of downfield plays if the Texans are to see any sustained offensive success. Likeliest Game Flow 
Both teams are likely to lean heavily on their bell cow running backs early in this game, with the Titans having a much greater chance of success on the ground. The Titans are clearly the team that is likely to control this game, but their lack of passing efficiency and explosiveness, combined with the Texans' ability to keep things close, should lead us to believe the Titans will be able to build a lead, but are unlikely to blow things open early. The Texans won't be shy about passing and could also have some early success if they can connect on a couple of plays down the field, a scenario that would give them the best chance to win against a Titans team that is built to play from ahead. During their four-game winning streak, the Titans have outscored their opponents by a combined score of 75-30 to in the first half. The Commanders at the Colts kick off Sunday, October 30th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 39.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both teams have moved to new starting quarterbacks within the last week. The Colts' offense should have a completely different look with Sam Ellinger under center than they did with the immobile Matt Ryan. The pace of play is likely to be very slow, with the Colts keeping things manageable for Ellinger while the Commanders rank 31st in the league in pace of play. The Commanders' pass defense is clearly the weakest defensive unit to attack this game, so it will be interesting if Ellinger can exploit it. How Washington Will Try to Win Taylor Heineke's return to the starting QB job in Washington was a triumphant one, with a 23-21 home victory over the Packers. The Commanders won, and Heineke made some nice plays to take the lead and ice the game, but also made some big errors including a first-half pick six and another sack fumble that the Packers returned for a touchdown, but was called back due to an extremely questionable defensive holding penalty that had no impact on the play. The Colts' defense has been very solid this season and ranks 11th in the NFL in DVOA, making this a very tough matchup for an offense that ranks 30th in the league in yards per play, which is one of the most predictive stats we have for offensive success slash efficiency. The Commanders rank second to last in tempo during neutral game scripts, showing a clear reluctance to turn up the pace. This should not be surprising with old-school head coach Ron Riviera wanting to win ugly games and rely on his defense to keep things manageable. With Indianapolis breaking in a new quarterback, we should expect more of the same from Washington as they want to keep things close or build a lead slowly and force Ellinger to play in a tight game or from behind. Washington also pivoted to a very run-heavy approach last week, running the ball on 53% of their offensive plays, a rate that would be the second-highest in the NFL over the course of this season. Antonio Gibson and Brian Robinson each played a lot and were even on the field together at times, with Gibson catching a touchdown after being split out at wide receiver in the formation. We should expect a similar approach this week with a methodical, run-heavy game plan, although the Colts' run defense has been very good this season, which should force Heineke into some tough third-down situations. Terry McLaurin had perhaps his best game of the season and returned to a 25% target share, which he had last year as well with Heineke under center, after seeing only 16% of the targets from Carson Wentz. How Indianapolis Will Try to Win the big news for the Colts this week is the move to second-year QB Sam Ellinger as their new starter, moving on from pocket sloth Matt Ryan. Ellinger had an up-and-down college career at Texas, starting for three-plus years and leading the Longhorns to a Sugar Bowl victory in his second year, but didn't really improve from there in his final two seasons. 
Ellinger is a tough-minded individual who, by all accounts, has all the intangibles you would want from your starting quarterback, but lacks some of the physical tools, big arm, elite athleticism, pinpoint accuracy, that teams usually look for when trying to find franchise quarterbacks, which led to him dropping to the sixth round of the 2021 NFL Draft. Despite lacking elite size or speed, Ellinger is a willing and able runner who can extend plays with his legs and or generate yards on scrambles or designed runs. This could be a much-needed shot in the arm for a Colts offense that has struggled with consistency and been unable to move the ball well or score points for most of this season, scoring over 20 points in only one of seven games so far. The Colts rank 29th in the NFL in sacks allowed per game, a stat that several studies have proven is much more a QB stat than an offensive line stat, so it will be interesting to see how the change to Ellinger affects that result. And if fewer negative plays can help them sustain drives, it can't hurt. Another interesting aspect for the Colts' offense will be how it changes the structure and scheme of what they do. RPO, run-pass option, plays are now much more feasible, and read option concepts where the QB is actually capable of keeping the ball and running will make the Colts much more difficult to defend. Ellinger was electric this preseason, completing 83%, 22 for 29, of his passes for 289 yards, 10 yards per attempt, while adding another 71 yards on six carries, including a 45-yard TD scamper against the Buccaneers. His presence, while unlikely to have the same efficiency as he showed against backups in the preseason, should alleviate some pressure on the offensive line and open much bigger holes for Jonathan Taylor. We could also see Michael Pittman's target share increase as we often see backup QBs rely heavily on their alpha wide receiver when thrust into action, and Pittman's route tree could expand as well with more time to get downfield as he has been limited to mostly slants and hitches with Matt Ryan under center. Likeliest Game Flow Both of these teams have quarterbacks under center that they didn't intend to when the season started, and we have seen a combined one game played by the new starting quarterbacks this season. This means that there is a lot more volatility here than you usually expect in Week 8 between two teams who are right about 500 on the season and still very much alive for the postseason. Both defenses have played well recently. In theory, this game should be relatively low scoring as Washington has given up only 16 points per game over the last three weeks, and the Colts have held six of seven opponents to 20 points or less. The Commanders are 31st in the NFL in situation-neutral pace of play, and the Colts are breaking in a new QB, so we can expect the overall pace of the game and play volume to be muted. The Colts are at home and have the element of surprise on their side due to a likely new-look offense that will be hard for Washington to prepare for, which makes it most likely that the Colts are the team that takes an early lead. The Commanders have come back from second-half deficits in each of the last two weeks, however, and should be able to keep things close enough to make it interesting in the fourth quarter. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The 49ers at the Rams kick off Sunday, October 30th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson this game is a rematch of a Week 4 game that the 49ers dominated. The Rams enter this game off their bye week with more questions than answers on their offense and needing a win to stay in contention in the NFC West. 
The 49ers are also in a precarious position, having made a high-profile trade for Christian McCaffrey a week ago and now being on the brink of a 3-5 and record with a loss. The ability of the Rams' offensive line to protect Matthew Stafford and the Rams' defense to contain the 49ers' playmakers will determine the outcome. How San Francisco Will Try to Win The 49ers made waves around the NFL last week by trading for all-world running back Christian McCaffrey. The 49ers were already loaded with playmakers and now add another dynamic weapon to spread defenses thin. From a fantasy perspective, this may make things more difficult to project, but from a real-life perspective, defensive game planning against the 49ers is going to be extremely difficult going forward. On the defensive side, the 49ers were exposed by Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs last week in a 44-23 loss. The Chiefs were able to protect Mahomes very well, and he diced up the 49ers' scheme with relative ease, throwing for 430 yards and three touchdowns, which could have been even more as there were multiple TDs called back by penalty. However, the 49ers' defense has been stout outside of that one outlier, and this year's Rams' passing attack is nowhere near as efficient as what the Chiefs brought to town. San Francisco runs the ball at the 10th highest rate in the NFL and plays at the 5th slowest pace. The addition of CMC will help to make their offense less predictable and more dynamic. Basically, they now have the threat they used to give defenses by moving Debo Samuel into the backfield while still being able to have all of Debo, Brandon Ayuk, and George Kittle spread out and running routes. The 49ers' play calling will be far less telegraphed, and head coach Kyle Shanahan should have a field day drawing up plays to take advantage of defenses that shade any certain direction, while also being freed up to attack individual matchups that defenses will struggle with across the board. Basically, in every game and on every play, there will be someone in the 49ers' skill core who is in an advantageous position, and Shanahan is a master at exploiting those spots, while also being great at play designs that counteract defenses overplaying things. The one concern for this is the status of Debo Samuel, who missed practice on Wednesday and Thursday, putting his status in question. We should expect a similar play-calling split from the 49ers this week to what we've seen in the past, and when they do pass, it will likely be manageable concepts for Jimmy Garoppolo to get the ball out of his hands quickly and let his playmakers do their thing. It wouldn't be surprising to see the 49ers up the tempo going forward, as they should have to substitute and change personnel packages less, and when the defense's personnel is something they like, there is a huge advantage to going no huddle and not letting them sub. All of it will be very interesting to see unfold, but one thing is certain, and that is that the 49ers' offense will be more dynamic than ever, with CMC playing a full game. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win The first and foremost thing for the Rams' offense in this game will be finding a way to protect Matthew Stafford and finding a means of offensive production besides Cooper Cup. The last time we saw the Rams play was in Week 6 against the Panthers, when they won an ugly game against a poor team. Really, that's been a theme for the Rams this season. They are a classic middle-of-the-road team, who has wins against teams that have struggled this year and losses against these stronger teams, Bills, 49ers, and Cowboys, that they have played. This week against the 49ers presents some difficult challenges, but hopefully they can learn from last time and improve coming out of their bye week. The Rams have slowed the game down in the biggest way of any team in the NFL from last season to this season. 
After being one of the fastest tempo teams in the league in 2021, the Rams rank dead last in situation-neutral pace of play at a ridiculously slow 33.27 seconds per snap. The Rams have continued to be an above-average pass rate team, but those passes have become more conservative this season thanks in large part to an offensive line that has struggled, ranking 30th in PFF pass-blocking grades. The Rams' backfield is also in shambles, with Cam Akers grounded, Daryl Henderson not being trusted for a full-time role, Malcolm Brown being a plotter, and Kyron Williams not yet ready to return. This week against an injury-riddled but still stout 49ers defense, we should expect the Rams to continue playing at a slow pace, trying to protect Matthew Stafford and taking what the defense gives them from their zone looks underneath in the form of a lot of targets to Cooper Cup, Tyler Higby, and Ben Skoranek. The 49ers held Stafford to just over five yards per pass attempt in the first meeting, and it's likely going to take a high volume of pass attempts to see offensive production in this meeting as well. Last week, the Chiefs basically abandoned the run and let Patrick Mahomes go to work on the 49ers secondary in all areas of the field, picking them apart both man and zone concepts. The Rams don't have that luxury due to their pass-blocking issues and will have to do all they can to keep this game close and in question into the fourth quarter. Likeliest Game Flow The outlook for this game is nowhere near what you would expect entering the year from the defending Super Bowl champs who were lights out on offense last year, and a San Francisco team that is absolutely loaded with explosive players. However, we are almost halfway through the season now, and it is safe to say that these teams are who they've shown us to be. The Rams are going to play a very methodical game and hope to avoid early turnovers that seal their fate before they have a chance. The 49ers' high run rate, short area focus in the passing game, and 28th-ranked pace of play will also keep this game methodical. Really, the best path to this game having offensive fireworks would be through turnovers from the 49ers that put the Rams out in front and force the 49ers to take advantage of all of those weapons in a comeback attempt. If things go the other way, with the Rams falling behind, offensive success will be even harder for them to come by in a predictable game script. The reality of this game is that it will be difficult to get very far past the 43-point total due to the slow pace of play from these teams and the conservative nature of the 49ers, along with the scared nature the Rams have to play with at this point. The Giants at the Seahawks kick off Sunday, October 30th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Shockingly, this game features a matchup of the two teams with the best combined record, 10-6, of all the games on the Week 8 slate. Two previously left-for-dead quarterbacks, Daniel Jones and Geno Smith, are in the midst of career-best seasons. Both teams have a middling pace of play, but can be pushed to increase the tempo when the situation dictates. Red zone struggles by both offenses and defenses that have tightened up in scoring zones recently will keep scoring expectations in check. How New York will try to win The Giants are one of the more surprising teams in the NFL through seven weeks and keep finding ways to win. While this New York offense doesn't look like the offense we saw from head coach Brian DeBall during his time with the Bills, that makes sense as any good coach builds their offense around the strengths of the players. At the center of the Giants' offense is Saquon Barkley, who is having a resurgent season with his health holding up. 
He has been the engine for an offense that has been consistent despite mediocre offensive line play and a receiving core made up largely of replacement level or lower talents. Additionally, Daniel Jones is having a career year and is currently setting career highs in completion percentage, QB rating, and wins. His six wins this season are more than the Giants have had in any full season since Jones was drafted. Most of the offense revolves around those two players, with Barkley being used as a workhorse on the ground while also leading the team in targets through seven games. Jones has also been a huge threat on the ground, averaging nearly 50 rushing yards per game and quickly approaching his career high in rushing yards for the season. Looking at how the Giants will approach this game, it is likely to be more of the same with a game plan built around Barkley that also gives Jones some quick, easy reads and opportunities to use his legs to extend plays and or pick up yards. The Giants run the ball at the sixth highest rate in the NFL and play at a middle-of-the-pack tempo. The Giants have been very conservative when they do throw the ball, as Jones has a very pedestrian 3.6 average intended air yards, which reflects the Giants' focus on passes to Barkley out of the backfield and in the short areas of the field to their plethora of non-elite athletes in the receiving core. This week, the Giants face a Seattle defense that has shown drastic improvement over the last two weeks after some awful performances against Detroit and New Orleans. Seattle's defense has performed much better at home than on the road this year, which should be no surprise considering the raucous crowd that they always have on their side. The Giants will certainly look to keep the crowd at bay and lean heavily on Barkley and short area passing to stay out of third and long situations where the crowd noise will really become an issue. Another interesting angle to consider is how Seattle's defense will handle the rushing ability of Daniel Jones. The Seahawks have shifted to playing significantly more man coverage in the last few weeks, and that resulted in them giving up a 100-yard rushing game to Kyler Murray just two weeks ago. A few extra designed run for Jones in this spot would not be surprising. How Seattle will try to win Seattle has been up and down this season, but is coming off arguably their most impressive performance of the season, a 37-23 pounding of the Chargers that was really not even as close as the score indicated. Geno Smith has been playing at a career-best level, leading the league in completion percentage and ranking third in QB rating after an offseason of people expecting him to hold a clipboard for Drew Locke. Smith has been highly efficient this season and made good decisions with the ball, but will need to be even better in Week 8 assuming that DK Metcalf sits this game out. Metcalf had a scary knee injury early in the win over the Chargers, and the Seahawks have a bye next week, making it highly unlikely Metcalf returns to play in this matchup. The other key part of the Seahawks' offense is rookie running back Kenneth Walker, who ranks third in the NFL with an average 6.1 yards per carry. The Giants' run defense ranks dead last in the NFL in yards per carry allowed, so it is safe to say that the Seahawks will likely lean heavily on Walker due to his matchup and the absence of Metcalf. The Seahawks' offensive line actually hasn't been great, ranking 22nd in the NFL in adjusted line yards, but it has opened enough holes to give Walker and the now-injured Rashad Penny, who also averaged 6.1 yards per carry, plenty of chances to get to the second level and let their athleticism take over for big runs. Walker has multiple 70-yard touchdown runs in the last three weeks. When the Seahawks do turn to the air, they will likely stick to manageable throws to keep the chains moving, with some occasional shot plays. Tyler Lockett was battling a hamstring injury all of last week and appeared to be a shell of himself. Lockett has nine receptions for 62 yards over the last two weeks after averaging seven receptions for 95 yards in the four previous games. 
If Lockett is still hampered and the Seahawks are without Metcalf, the efficiency of their passing game should be expected to take a major hit. Likeliest Game Flow The Giants' defense, while ranking poorly in many metrics, has held itself together relatively well and done enough to keep the team in striking distance every week. While many may look at this game and the poor rankings of the defenses on both sides and think it is a recipe for a shootout, we should be careful not to jump to conclusions so quickly. There has not been a Giants game this season that has reached 50 total points, and no individual team in a Giants game has scored more than 27 points. Meanwhile, the Seahawks defense is giving up only 17.3 points per game at home compared to 33.5 on the road. There are some underlying signals here that explain why this game has a middling over-under of 45 points despite featuring two top 10 DVOA offenses facing defenses that are bottom 10 in the league in yards per carry allowed and yards per pass attempt allowed. The Giants lean run heavy, and the Seahawks, who have been about even with their expected pass rate so far this season, may also lean heavily towards the run thanks to the emergence of Kenneth Walker and the likely absence of DK Metcalf. This combination of run-heavy offenses on both sides and defenses that bend but don't break will likely mean several long drives ending in field goals. Along those lines, it is worth noting that both of these offenses rank bottom 10 in the league in red zone touchdown conversion rate. The Giants' defense also ranks 4th in the league in red zone touchdown rate allowed to opponents, which explains the discrepancy between their underlying metrics and their solid performance from a pure scoring perspective. While there is likely some regression coming in that department, this doesn't seem likely to be the week against an offense that has struggled in the red zone and will be without their best big-body receiver in that area of the field. Everything considered, this should be a competitive game that will likely play out in a similar fashion to every Giants game so far this season, a one-score game decided in the fourth quarter. It seems very likely that this game will be decided by one or two big plays and or whichever of Geno Smith or Daniel Jones falls back into old habits by making a critical mistake.